Welcome everyone. Uh, we're here today um, to discuss uh, COVID-19 related class actions. Um, I'm, to introduce myself, um, I'm counsel at Pierce Atwood here in Boston. Uh, my practice focuses on class action defense and complex commercial litigation. Um, most recently with a, a focus on COVID-19 related class actions. Uh, the speakers who will be joining us today um, include uh, my fellow moderator, Michael Perry. Uh, Michael is a partner with Hunt and Andrews Kurth in their Boston office, um, and he is a trial lawyer um, who uh, represents um, clients in business disputes, including in, in class actions. And our speakers who will be focusing uh, more in depth in some of these issues today We'll include Michael Levine, um, who's a, also a partner with Hunter and Andrews Kurth in, in Washington, D.C., um, and he focuses on litigating insurance disputes and advising clients on insurance coverage matters, um, focusing on uh, business interruption claims and COVID-19-related losses. And then um, lastly, we're joined uh, by my colleague, Lucas Ritchie, a partner with Pierce Atwood in Portland, Maine. Um, Lucas focuses his practice on class action defense and complex commercial disputes um, and has been uh, advising and working with, uh, in particular, banking and education uh, clients in relation to COVID-19 issues. Uh, so that is um, our group today. Thank you everyone for joining us. And I think we'll um, get started on an overview of these actions. Our format today, we're going to focus on some of the overarching trends uh, and what we've observed with COVID-19 related class actions. And then with our speakers, focus in greater depth into um, some particular categories that we've seen. <clears throat> uh, so in the last six months, you know, we really didn't see these actions prior to March of this spring. Um, it coincided very much with the pace of the outbreak here in the United States. Um, in the past six months, there's been nearly 4,000 federal class actions related to COVID-19 issues filed to date. Um, the pace of filings, we saw a peak earlier this spring, um, but the pace is still significant. We're on pace for um, a historic number of filings by the end of this year. And also, too, the, that pace of filing, those trends aren't consistent across all categories of class actions. Certain categories have slowed, others are on the rise, and that's to be expected And with um, as this pandemic and the responses to it unfold. Um, the leading jurisdictions where we've seen cases filed in many ways tracks with the way that we see class action activity generally. Um, so you see uh, New York predominating filings followed by California, Florida, Texas and Illinois. Um, here in New England, uh, there has been no exception. Um, New England-based uh, businesses and institutions have been targets of these class actions, and there have been 60 actions filed to date here um, in the District of Massachusetts. Um, the future of these actions, the pace of filings, whether these trends will continue, it's a bit uncertain, especially because both at the state and federal level, uh, there's a lot of debate right now concerning potential liability shield litigation for businesses, for healthcare providers, for others. Um, and the way that that takes shape, if it's eventually passed, that will really, in many ways, determine how we will see these cases um, and their progress in, in the coming months. 
right, if we can, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so this uh, slide, um, you know, this illustrates the pace of filings that we've seen. Um, you know, as you can see, that slope really took off um, in, in late April and in the month of May. Um, it looks like, um, you know, the, so to speak, the, the curve is starting to flatten a bit as, as we enter the summer. Um, but it, it remains to be seen how these trends will, will continue and the complaints, you know, there's been no shortage. They certainly continue to be on the rise and are steadily being filed in all jurisdictions. If we can go on to the next slide. So this slide is to give an idea of the types of cases claims that have been filed. And really what has stood out to us is, is you're seeing a diversity of claims across all practice areas and in a variety of theories and, you know, targeting a wide variety of industries. Uh, as you can see, um, there's a significant, if you start from the top and proceed clockwise, you know, a significant number of banking claims, um, as well as a portion uh, of civil rights. And uh, you can see that insurance claims really predominate in this space. Education is a significant segment. Um, and you also have a wide variety of consumer-based claims. Um, it will be interesting to see how these proportions shift um, as, as these cases continue to be filed. They may look different at different um, points in time, but I think this is very illustrative of, of the variety of cases and that, um, you know, so many different business segments and industries are, are affected. It really looks like no group is immune, especially if they are consumer facing and as employers, we're going to continue to see exposure there. And if we can head into the, there we go. Um, you know, so wrapping up the, the big picture overview of all claims, um, you know, there are some key commonalities that we have seen, although it's hard to speak about them in, in broad strokes, given the variety that you saw on the previous slide. Um, but some core theories of liability. We've seen lots of claims based on breach of contract, implied contract, quasi-contract theories. Um, same with unjust enrichment, conversion, con consumer fraud. Uh, business practices. We've seen these in a lot of the consumer-facing claims, whether they be in event cancellation, um, in education, um, you know, we've, we've continued to see them in a variety of areas, and particularly the invention, the travel space, because those were so immediately impacted um, by COVID-19-related closures and cancellations. Um, but we are also now seeing employment cases on the rise, as one may expect, um, either through reductions in, in, in force, uh, personnel changes, or um, you know, practices in terms of safety precautions. Um, there's also been a wide variety of civil rights cases. Um, securities class actions are another area where that's expected to be on the rise, we'll see. And then um, in terms of accessibility-based claims, also data security, that's another area where we're seeing some theories asserted. Um, in terms of defenses, that's of course going to vary by claim. Um, there are some procedural defenses that may be common to all claims. Arbitration agreements, particularly for employees and consumer claims, and then jurisdictional and, and standing-based claims, especially when harms might be speculative in nature. Um, of course, we're <laughs> here at a class actions presentation. Class, class certification is going to be a major stage where these theories and these claims are tested. 
and um, their mm -hmm. very well could be challenges based on Rule 23 um, that may be asserted and maybe be common across these categories of claims. Um, and in terms of merits defenses, that again is going to be specific to the claims asserted, but one thing that's interesting is we're looking now at some rarely invoked, you know, defenses or things that were not commonly discussed, for example, force majeure clauses are now really at the forefront, the subject of a lot of discussion and likely some litigation. Um, and also too, these are very unprecedented circumstances. So I, we may see some unpredictable rulings or some you know, new applications of, of law to these circumstances that call for, for different um, interpretations than may be expected. So um, thanks, Melody. I think that was a great uh, overview. And um, before we dive too deeply into the class action discussion, I think it's important to um, at least hit on um, what was identified as the largest uh, segment um, back on the, uh, the pie chart. Uh, we saw one of the largest uh, segments of class action litigation um, and litigation generally arising out of COVID involves insurance and more specifically business interruption insurance. Virtually every industry, every sector of the economy has been impacted negatively by COVID. And um, virtually every segment of the economy has uh, some form of business insurance or property insurance. And part of the property insurance that commercial policyholders or companies have is for business income losses, loss of gross earnings, loss of business income, and other uh, financial losses that the company may sustain as a result of some physical uh, harm to their business. Um, and this is where the business interruption litigation comes in. Um, we've seen well over a thousand, we have a thousand plus cases on the slide, but well over a thousand um, business interruption insurance cases filed as a result of COVID. Um, starting back in mid-March. Uh, the cases are filed across the country in state and federal courts um, for a variety of reasons, including the location of the parties and, and the states uh, from which the parties hail. Um, there are jurisdictional issues that have to be considered uh, in insurance litigation like any litigation, and that will uh, determine which courts the parties can be in. Um, but in some instances, they cannot be in federal court and they'll be in state court. But either way, the law um, is always going to be at the state level. There is no federal insurance law. It's all state common law. And the law varies from state to state. And this is uh, one of the interesting features about insurance and one of the reasons that historically we've almost never seen insurance coverage cases brought into class actions. They're just not uh, suited for class uh, consolidation, nor are they uh, particularly suitable for multi-district uh, litigation consolidation. Although there has been a concerted effort um, in the business interruption insurance cases to, uh, to do both. On the class side, we've seen um, a very large number of class actions brought uh, mainly on behalf of smaller policyholders, and mainly in the hospitality and restaurant uh, industries. Um, I have my suspicion as to what's motivating that. I think a lot of it is that the individual cases don't um, have a lot of uh, value uh, to them. Either the policies are uh, more tricky policies, and we'll talk about the coverage issues in a moment, 
um, or the value just isn't there and, and this would lend itself to consolidation, um, at least from a, from a litigation standpoint for the purposes of the lawyers handling the cases. Um, the same in the, in the MDL or the multi-district litigation. Um, most of the cases that are being advocated for MDL consolidation are brought by small policyholders. Um, there are a handful of lawyers, uh, typically, in fact, they are not insurance coverage practitioners by trade for the most part, um, but they've brought these cases and they're advocating for MDL consolidation. And in fact, today uh, is the day for hearings um, before the judicial panel on multi-district litigation on whether or not um, that panel will act to consolidate cases uh, brought in the federal court system in an MDL for purposes of pretrial proceedings. Um, but you know, when we look at the at the general uh, landscape of cases that have been brought for business interruption arising out of COVID, while we do have very many cases brought by small policyholders, by restaurants, by um, small businesses who have been impacted, there are a lot of uh, cases and an increasing number of cases brought by large and sophisticated uh, policyholders, and, and typically these cases will tend to lag behind because of the sophisticated nature of the insured and their business operations, it just takes more time to go through the, the process, the pre-suit process with the insurance company um, to make sure that the, the, the loss is properly characterized and notice that the insurance company has fully investigated and you get to a point where litigation um, ensues. But we are seeing it more and more uh, frequently now for the large and sophisticated policyholders in those cases in particular are not suitable for class litigation in part because of the disparate, disparate size and scope of the cases but also um, as we'll talk about in, uh, in a few more slides um, you, know, it, you just have very differing features and characteristics of the losses and the insurance policies themselves. Um, can I can I ask a question? I know I, we're fortunate to have you as a panelist, uh, not only because you're well versed in the theory behind um, these business interruption cases, but I know you're actively involved in some of the major pieces of litigation that are currently pending. Um, I know you're counsel to Legal Seafoods in a case that's uh, pending in the uh, District of Massachusetts, as well as some of uh, some big cases out in Nevada for Nevada for casinos such as Circus Circus and Treasure Island. Can you tell us the nature, in, in, in the sense of an overview of the the theories advanced by the policyholders in these cases, and the defenses that are being posed by the insurers? I know there's a lot of talk about this issue of whether there's physical loss or damage to property. Tell us about what the issues you're seeing out there in these cases. Uh, you know, as someone who's on the ground in the in these cases, right, right, and and it, you know the the issues are different, um, and this gets to the point I was just making about why these cases don't lend themselves to class actions in MDL. The issues are different because they're driven by the language of the insurance policy and the insurance business operations, and in each of the cases that I have filed, and I now have three on file, and several more that will be on file in the coming uh, days and weeks. Um, but between Legal Seafoods, Treasure Island Casino, and Circus Circus uh, Casino in Las Vegas, we have three different insurance policies, and each one gives rise to different uh, reasons for coverage and different arguments against coverage. 
Um, the, the physical loss or damage issue, Mike, that you just mentioned is the core issue. And that one issue does um, arise under virtually every insurance policy that we looked at uh, for COVID-19 claims. And, and it makes sense because the, the insurance policies are property insurance policies. They do insure physical property, the, the buildings and, and the um, business personal property of the policyholders, but they also insure losses of business income. So the first question is, has there been a loss that triggers the policy? And the, the language varies, but the language is generally broad. And the language generally affords two independent triggers of coverage. One is more obvious, it's damage to the property, something physically um, affects the property. But you can also trigger coverage under these policies from a direct physical loss of the property. And the way the policies are written and under the ordinary rules of insurance policy construction, which again, vary from state to state, but are also consistent in many ways. This is one of those consistencies. The, the language of the policy has to be given meaning and understanding. The words matter and the words can't contradict each other and they have to be read in harmony. So when you have a phrase that says direct physical loss of or damage to property, direct physical loss and damage cannot be read to mean the same thing. And this is the main point of contention between policyholders and insurers. Insurers want that language to mean one thing, physical damage to the property. The property has to be physically impaired or impacted some way. And my view, and, I, and many courts have agreed, is that direct physical loss of has to be given meaning. It has to be independent meaning. It cannot mean damage. And this issue has actually been litigated in Massachusetts and uh, courts in Massachusetts have agreed. They said there is no way those two phrases can mean the same thing to the extent you insurance companies say they do. Those phrases are ambiguous and we construe the ambiguity in favor of the policy. Is there, uh, have there been any rulings, Mike, specific to this COVID-19 business interruption issues that have been, have been issued by either state or federal courts to date? And, and what impact in terms of uh, precedential value do these decisions have? I know you mentioned earlier that these are all state law related issues and, you know, comment on the, the, the problems that might arise if you have conflicting rulings from different state courts and and how are those reconciled? Right. So there have been rulings. Uh, there have actually been two uh, in the United States on uh, COVID-related claims. Um, I don't feel that either is particularly valuable from a precedential point of view. The first one was the Southern District of New York in the uh, printing case, um, Social Life uh, uh, Publications, I believe. Um, and the policyholder in that case did an odd thing. Um, they, they brought a motion, um, they filed for a, a preliminary injunction. And it, the, the point was to force the insurance company to pay the loss. Um, something that we rarely see, and I've never seen succeed in an insurance case. And the, the policyholder brought the, the request, the, the motion for a preliminary injunction, and, and teed up the coverage issue before the court um, on no evidence and based only on the pleadings. And the problem was that the policyholder had not properly pled the case and wasn't prepared to argue 
the nuances between direct physical loss and physical damage. And you know, coming at this, and, and this was, by the way, an example of a non-insurance coverage lawyer trying to litigate a, a fairly complex insurance coverage issue. And, and the lawyer went in and had the argument um, it, uh, before Judge Caproni and failed to raise any of the issues that needed to be raised. And Judge Caproni said, your arguments are nonsensical. You get a gold star for trying, I think is what she said, but um, I'm not buying the argument. And, and he didn't get the injunction and then took the case up on appeal to the Second Circuit and ultimately abandoned the appeal. Uh, so that, that case uh, is not going to proceed. The second case was a Michigan State Court uh, case uh, brought by a, the owner of several restaurants in uh, a rural Michigan County. And that case, too, was on an odd procedural um, footing uh, where the policyholder pushed um, the case aggressively and the insurer uh, moved to dismiss. And again, in that case, the insurance company was represented by sophisticated coverage counsel, but the policyholder was not. And the policyholder's lawyer, number one, failed to plead um, the, the requisite allegations in his complaint. And then two, didn't address any of the relevant case law um, or the nuances in those decisions that actually support a finding of coverage. So. Um, in, in both of those cases, and, and actually in the Gavarlides case, which is the Michigan case, the argument was on YouTube, uh, which I thought was odd, but I guess that's the new normal um, one will be. Um, it, and I did watch it. it. It was very painful to watch because the arguments that could have been made and should have been made just weren't. And as a result, the, the court uh, ruled as I suspected uh, it would, and the judge ruled against, um, against the policyholder in that case. Given the, the procedural um, posture of both of those cases and given the um, factual deficiencies in the pleading in the Michigan case, I don't think either of those cases um, will carry much weight um, in terms of precedent. And, and I think it's also important to point out that Michigan law um, differs significantly from the law in many other jurisdictions in that it does um, find, it does have uh, more strict um, findings in favor of insurance companies and other jurisdictions. But that raises the important point of where you file suit if you're a policyholder, and it's important to look at all of your options and pick the most favorable jurisdiction. What about the impact of state and federal legislation? I know in Massachusetts, uh, a bill was advanced that related to um, business interruption claims. Does that, does that, in your view, present a potential solution here? What are your thoughts on the likelihood of any of these pieces of legislation passing and having any material impact on these cases? Yeah, there, there's been a lot of legislation uh, proposed. I have not seen any uh, state level legislation um, pass um, or even come close to it. Um, but I don't think that those cases will have a significant impact even, even if the legislation were to find its way into law for several reasons. One. It, it, the legislation, um, for the most part, there are a few outliers, but for the most part, those um, proposed bills stand to undo or alter written contract. And that raises a host of issues um, on state levels and, and on a constitutional level, um, whether you can alter a parties or, or two parties agreement um, that preceded the legislation. 
But even if you got past the constitutional hurdles, the legislation is focused on small businesses. So uh, businesses with 100 or fewer employees, or in a few instances, 150 or fewer employees would be the targets of this legislation. Um, but it, it isn't going to have an impact for the larger uh, businesses and the more valuable um, claims that are out there. What, what do you think, Mike, uh, are, is the biggest hurdle that policyholders uh, need to overcome in these cases, in your view? I, I, you know, it's, it's odd. Um, and again, I think it gets to the genuine concern that the insurance companies have uh, with respect to COVID-19 claims. But it's the, it's the perception, the misperception that the insurance companies have created and are continuing to attempt to bolster by taking to media, social media, um, newspapers, um, televised media, and making very bold public statements that um, COVID-19 business interruption claims are not covered. I, I was surprised to see the CEO of um, one major insurer do a, almost a full page op-ed in the New York Times um, to explain why these claims aren't covered. Why, when, when do you ever see things of that nature um, at an insurance coverage level? I, I've never seen it. And I've been involved with a lot of insurance coverage, um, large losses. I was heavily involved with the, the business interruption and property litigation after 9-11. And even there, we never saw the insurance industry as a whole take to the media to publicize their position and try to get out in front of litigation. And never before, including after 9-11, have we ever seen the insurance industry uniformly deny claims regardless of the policy, regardless of the facts, regardless of the state law. But we've seen that with COVID-19. Now, one insurance company that I'm aware of has accepted coverage for a COVID-19 insurance claim. That must make it pretty, pretty unpopular in the insurance industry. Well, you know, tough luck. I, I represented the industry for a dozen or so years and, you know, they are what they are. They do what they do, but I've never seen them do what they're doing now. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. That was extremely helpful and insightful. And Melanie, I want to turn it back over to you to introduce Lucas Ritchie, who I know is going to speak on the tuition refund cases and uh, provide his in insights on those issues. There, let me unmute myself. <laughs> Thank, thanks to both of you. Um, yeah, so next, um, my colleague Lucas Ritchie um, has been very focused on the development of these um, tuition refund class actions and claims against uh, higher education institutions that are based on COVID-19 closures. Um, so, Lucas, I'll turn it to you um, as you give us um, an overview of what's been happening in those cases. Yes, and Steve, could you, uh, could you please take us to slide nine, please? One more, one more forward, please. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, as Melanie said, I'm Lucas Ritchie. I'm a partner at Pierce Atwood's office in Portland, Maine. Um, I do a lot of work on consumer class actions. And one area that we've seen uh, impacted in that space as a result of COVID-19 is, is colleges and universities and, and cases filed um, in relation to colleges and universities 
shutting down uh, their campuses in March as a result of the virus and transitioning to online learning. Um, some students following those decisions um, have filed suits throughout, throughout the country uh, seeking um, refunds for certain of the, the tuition and fees that they paid the university for the period after the, the campuses were shut down. Uh, to date, there have been more than 180 such class actions filed, and we'll talk a little bit about the geographic breakdown. Um, but the claims that you see, it's, it's, it's important to note that most of these complaints expressly acknowledge that the colleges and universities acted appropriately when they shut down. Uh, the students nonetheless are arguing that the off-campus experience and the online learning isn't what they bargained for, and that, they're, um, that they should be awarded some type of refund um, resulting from the difference in value between on-campus in-person learning and learning remotely. The, all of the complaints uh, seek refunds for tuition payments, the tuition that was uh, relating to the period from March forward when the, when the, when the, when the school was shut down. Um, some of the complaints also seek refunds of, of of other fees. Many schools provided pro rata refunds of on-campus room and board, so that is not an issue in many of the cases. Most of the focus is on this pro rata tuition and other fees. The complaints do not, generally do not quantify um, their, the alleged harm, what the difference in value between on-campus on learning and remote learning would be. Um, recently, we are seeing some claims based on digital accessibility to online learning, uh, folks with um, visual or hearing uh, impairments making claims that, that the platforms provided by universities um, are, are not uh, reasonable or supportable for their purposes. We're seeing um, in the complaints, um, they rely on some of the marketing and other admissions materials. So using the, own, the school's own words kind of against them in the complaints because admissions folks, as you can imagine, are talking about the value of the on-campus experience as they are recruiting students to come to their institutions. So we see a lot of that in the complaints. Also, some institutions offer, pre-COVID offered online learning as an alternative to on-campus learning. And at times there could be variations in, in the pricing of those two different learning styles. And you'll see that in the complaints too, saying, well, the school was already offering online learning at this price. Why should I be paying a higher different price for online instruction post COVID? The, the three, there's three main firms that have brought, um, I think 95% of the, of, of the cases um, that, are, that are currently pending. Um, most, so it's a lot of the same firms bringing the same claims. There are uh, more than 90% of the defendants are universities with only have a handful of colleges currently facing litigation. Uh, the, the plaintiff's bar has initially focused on, on the larger universities with more students uh, and potentially higher value claims. Um, more than a quarter of the defendants are facing multiple suits. Um, <clears throat> We can go to the to the next side, uh, slide, please, Steve. And you can see Melanie in, in, the, in the general overview today talked about uh, kind of the trends of the of filing of, of suits over the period since March. Um, what we've seen in, in the in the higher education space is that there were, you know, a number of, of, of cases filed in, in April, more cases filed in May, and it has started to 
decrease in volume uh, since May, as many of the larger um, educational institutions um, are, are now facing suit. Some of this has, has slowed down. Go to the next slide, please. Apologies, my screen's not turning. Um, the suits are spread out all across the country. We're seeing them in, in, in many different jurisdictions. The um, roughly, you'll see here, some of the areas that have the, the highest number of, of class actions filed in the higher education space are California, Texas, Florida, areas that have a lot of colleges and universities. Massachusetts has 12 cases uh, pending right now. Um, they are pending in, in federal court, pending in front of Judge Stearns, Judge Talwani, Judge Young, and Judge Gordon. Um, most of the class actions in this space have been filed in federal district courts um, and mostly filed in the federal district court where the institution is located. We have seen a small number of suits filed um, in districts where a student plaintiff resides, but the institution is not located. But most of the most of the cases have been filed where the institution is located. Um, Michael talked about earlier MDL and the potential for MDL consolidation for some of the business interruption claims. There has been talk in in the education space about whether there will be an MDL. These cases, to me, don't seem to be particularly suited for MDL treatment uh, because it is a matter of state law that could vary between the states. Most of the theories, as we'll talk about, are, are based on, on state law. Um, none of the polarities that I'm aware of have petitioned the JPML for, for, for consolidation at this point. I think that's probably an unlikely development. What I think is more likely is that within the individual states, um, case, state uh, cases may be consolidated in front of a particular judge for pretrial purposes. Some of that is starting to happen in, in Massachusetts where we've seen uh, there were five separate actions filed against BU um, that Judge Stearns has consolidated for, for pretrial purposes. And I would expect that we'll see more of that uh, within the district and also nationally. Can we go to the next slide, please. I wanna spend, with that background of, of where the cases are filed um, and, and, and the volume, I'd like to spend some time um, talking about the, the theories and some of the defenses that we're seeing to date in these cases. The, all of the contracts allege, excuse me, all of the complaints allege breach of contract. Um, many also allege other state law claims, including conversion, um, unjust enrichment. We're starting to see now that some of the complaints are including um, claims for breach of state consumer protection statutes. I do not believe that any of the claims filed in Massachusetts to date, uh, any cases filed in Massachusetts have um, 93A claims, for example. Um, but it's, it's a princ principally a, a breach of contract theory is what we're seeing. Um, the argument is that the students bargained for on-campus learning um, and on-campus on experience and what they were providing provided was something less than that and there therefore is harm, and the harm is the, the delta between the value of the experience they, they signed up for and the value of the, of the at-home learning. The defenses that were, so far there have been <clears throat> only two motions to dismiss filed nationally. Many of the institutions were able to secure extensions to answer or otherwise respond. There will be a raft of motion to dismiss 
filed here in, in late summer, early fall, I suspect. But to date, there has been only two motions to dismiss. Um, there was a, a motion filed by Temple in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania um, and a motion filed by the University of Florida in the Northern District of Florida. I'm gonna talk about some of the highlights of, of the defenses that they raised there. Um, but with respect to Temple, um, in response to that motion, the plaintiff has amended uh, and there will be another round of briefing, I believe. And with respect to Florida, um, the plaintiff's opposition is due this week and will be set for argument sometime in, in August, I believe. So the defense, I'm gonna focus now a little on, on some of the defenses that, that we see in these motions. And then I also will talk about some of the defenses that we see, we potentially see available at the certification stage. Um, starting with, with motion to dismiss, the principal argument that we've seen um, are arguments that there is no express or implied contract for in-person on-campus instruction. Um, the universities are arguing that the only agreement was to provide education in exchange for tuition and to provide a degree when you get the sufficient number of credits. Um, plaintiffs are arguing, no, there was a, a, an agreement for in-person in -person instruction. Um, in Massachusetts, um, defendants will likely point to uh, recent decisions from the district court and from the First Circuit related to the Mount Ida um, closure. Um, there, Mount Ida closed with not much notice and it gave students the opportunity to transition over to UMass Dartmouth. Some of the students at Mount Ida uh, claimed that they were promised a four-year degree, four degree from that institution and, and, and sued for breach of contract. Um, the district court dismissed that claim um, and the First Circuit affirmed um, saying that there was, the students failed to point to a specific contractual promise that, they, that Mount Ida promised them a four-year degree and found that paying tuition in exchange for education doesn't in itself create a contract. So that's a, a, a type of defense that we, I think we'll see nationally. And, and in Massachusetts, there's some recent case law that, that touches on a similar subject. We also see in the motions to dismiss that uh, arguments that the damages uh, in these cases are speculative. Um, plaintiffs again claim that their harm is the difference in value between online and in-person learning. They don't quantify that. And there is case law nationally um, about the difficulty of valuing the quality of education. So I think we'll see arguments about the speculative nature of damages. There's also some interesting um, state-specific ar arguments that we're seeing in, in the two motions that have been filed to date. Uh, Temple, for example, argues that the plaintiff's claims are nothing more than educational malpractice pled, you know, in a different form. And there are uh, essentially prohibitions against educational malpractice claims in, under Pennsylvania law. Other states may have similar uh, defenses and we may see those raised. Florida as a state institution is arguing uh, sovereign immunity. And I expect we will see that from other state institutions that, are, that face these types of claims. Um, un unjust enrichment, which is one of the other more prevalent claims that we're seeing, um, what we see Temple in Florida arguing is that there was nothing unjust or inequitable about the school's retention of, of, of tuition and fees in exchange for providing remote learning, especially in light of the pandemic, that they spent considerable time and resources making sure that their students had the best education available to them given the circumstances. Um, and conversion is another one. Um, again, similar arguments that 
the defendants are arguing that there was no property wrongfully retained or taken. If these cases were to get past a motion to dismiss stage, we expect there to be other merits defenses. For example, if an implied contract for in-person education were found, defendants likely would argue concepts such as substantial performance, substitute performance. To the extent there is specific contract language on some of these points, things like force majeure and possibility and other contract doctrines may come into play. I also want to spend some time talking a little bit about class certification. This is a class action luncheon and talk about some of the theories and issues we think will come up if the cases make it to the class certification stage. I'm going to focus on, there are multiple defenses potentially for defendants to raise. I'm going to focus on two aspects for today's purposes. The first being defenses of typicality and adequacy of representation under Rule 23A and also predominance defenses under 23B3. Typicality and adequacy are interesting here. In reviewing some of the complaints, you see that plaintiffs allege harm specific to them. As an example, there's a complaint against Purdue University where the plaintiff, the sole plaintiff, is a senior engineering student who had a senior project to build an airplane and alleges in the complaint, I can't build this airplane at home. Well, he may be right, but his experience seems to be very different from, say, the English major who potentially can read their text from their parents' basement, for example. That plaintiff in the Purdue case may not be typical or adequate for purposes of Rule 23. Predominance will also be an area that the schools focus on and focusing specifically on dissimilarities between putative class members to make the argument that education is an inherently individualized exercise. Like we just described with the difference between an engineering student and an English student, those types of differences appear throughout the student body. For example, a student who is a science major and requires lab access is differently situated than the computer science major who may be able to do most of their work from a laptop. There are other categories of dissimilarities that I would expect defense to focus on, such as students residing on campus are differently situated than those that are off campus. Students on study abroad programs are differently situated than those here in the States. Students that are engaged substantially in various extracurriculars, whether that be student government or sports or any other club or activity at the school, may be differently situated than those who are not. Students who have professors who are particularly technologically skilled are differently situated than those who had professors who may be technophobes. And that could be an individualized issue that defense explores. There are also issues related to payment and scholarships and financial aid packages. How students pay for school 
is can be very individualized based on a number of factors, which will be an area that I anticipate defense would look at. Um, in the first circuit, there's other potential defenses available uh, to universities uh, that uh, one, one is uh, the, the case, the first circuit's decision from a couple years ago, uh, the in Asical antitrust litigation case, which stands for the proposition that a, uh, a class can't be certified that includes uninjured class members and requires individual inquiry to identify those uninjured class members. And, and here I can imagine a scenario where um, some students removed from campus life and forced into their parents' basement uh, may have spent more time studying and learned more and did better academically than they otherwise would have or that they did historically at their institution. Uh, and so there may be some ASICOL uninjured uh, class member type defenses that are available. Um, another, another area that we are, uh, that we've seen um, some of the commentators talk about are, is the issue of, of who paid the tuition um, and who is injured in this particular scenario. Uh, did the student pay? Did the parent pay? Um, maybe another family member or some third party providing a scholarship. Um, and it may be difficult to ascertain uh, the class reliably, which can cause certification problems. So that, those are a, a very non-exhaustive list of some of the issues that could come up if the cases proceed to, to the certification stages. Um, affecting both the merits and certification uh, may be you know, some of the statements that the schools have made coming into fall 2020 and, and, and how fall 2020 plays out for the various institutions. Uh, they could affect, excuse me, the spring 2020 claims. We're seeing nationally, and you may see some of this in the news, that there are um, some of the schools are planning uh, to go forward with in-person instruction. Some are going fully remote, um, and others are are going to a hybrid model. Um, and it remains, you know, we'll see how COVID plays out and how 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 how, how those plans. <clears throat> hopefully, those plans all go forward well for those institutions. But what remains to be seen. And there may be additional claims in this space uh, for tuition refund and, and, and things like that. Um, I think that the claims for fall 2020 and beyond will be procedurally, I mean, excuse me, um, positioned differently than the spring 2020 claims because students are, uh, you know, on notice of the potential that, um, that the campuses could be shut down as a result of. Of, of the communicable disease issue. And as I'm understanding that many schools are in fact um, requiring students to sign express waivers on some of these uh, some of these points going into the fall 2020 semester. So as, as noted in the slide here, some of these, these theories and defenses may well evolve uh, given, given developments in this space. Very great. Thanks, Lucas. Um, all right. So as we um, move forward here and wrap things up, um, I thought it would be interesting to get, um, you know, all of the speakers thoughts on some trends that we might see going into the future. You know, we now know what the first phase of COVID-19 related class action litigation um, looks like, but um, I thought it would be interesting to get uh, folks thoughts on what we may see going forward and how the next wave might be different from what we've initially seen. 
Lucas, maybe you want to speak to that in the in the education space. I know you just briefly touched on it, and then maybe Mike can speak on that in, in the uh, business interruption insurance aspect. Sure. Yeah, Mike. Uh, I, I think uh, that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you think a lot of uh, businesses or potential or policyholders are kind of keeping their powder dry here in terms of? You know, seeing what the courts do with the existing cases. What are your, what are your thoughts on where the insurance coverage issues are going? Yeah, and, and you know, I'm glad you raised that. I think a lot of policyholders are, so to speak, keeping the powder dry. And I've got my own views on that. I think in light of what we've seen in the two cases I discussed earlier, are great examples. Um, waiting on the sidelines uh, if you have a bona fide claim and by that i mean a claim under a policy that doesn't explicitly exclude pandemic um, or even a policy that doesn't exclude virus although there are um, a number of reasons why virus exclusion shouldn't apply but if you've got a claim under a policy that clearly provides coverage for um, COVID-19 for disease-related losses, for virus-related losses, bring that claim now because what may happen is that we see more decisions by inexperienced lawyers um, who are pushing fairly complex and, and, and nuanced um, arguments. And it, my fear is that, that some of these lawyers screw it up, so to speak, um, for the, the bona fide claims, for the legitimate claims. And I think it's important to get your claims on file and, and not sit back and keep the powder dry because you may not be able to use it at all. Is there a practical consideration? And I know the insurers have a lot of reserves, but is there actually a, a real fear that the money may run out, that the pot of money available to satisfy these claims may run out? And if you don't get in there quick, you know, you may be out of luck. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, and it's unfortunate, but the reality is that because every business you know, nationwide, worldwide, has suffered some form of loss, um, the, the money is going to run out if these claims are, um, you know, are determined to be covered um, as they should be. Now, there are some uh, carriers who may benefit um, from decisions because they, they've written stricter, uh, tighter policies that don't afford the coverage. But for those that do, um, you know, there very well could be a, a money crunch. Um, you know, and that's one of the issues that, that uh, is being looked at federally. Um, and it's certainly a concern for policyholders as well. I think, Melanie, too, that, you know, I think something you raised earlier is is the key issue here. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, what type of legislation comes out of uh, some of the discussions that the Congress is engaging in now in terms of liability protection. Because, you know, if, if the Republican bill, you know, at least what's proposed in there succeeds, it's going to have a big impact on dampening, you know, the, the plaintiff's bar's expectation in terms of these types of cases. <clears throat> If it doesn't, you can expect, I think, a big flood of, uh, of these cases coming in. And I think you also mentioned another key factor, which is, although a lot of companies have theoretically opened back up and we've opened the economy, quote unquote, you're really not seeing a lot of employees actually back physically in the workplace. 
And I think when that happens and, you know, inevitably if people get sick in the office and you start having those issues arise, I think that's going to impact the, the, the nature and quantity of litigation. And the same is true in terms of, of the uh, employment claims. And one of the things I think of is, you know, what if you invite everyone back and nobody shows up and people get terminated and, you know, they say, well, geez, you know, I'm, I legitimately am fearful of going back. And those are all things I think that because we've been all been on pause, haven't really happened yet. And when that stuff starts, you know, really, really happening, I think that's going to make a, or have a significant impact on these claims. Yeah, yeah, and also, Mike, I'll add that, you know, from an insurance point of view, you know, the insurance is all driven by what the losses are. A lot of companies are lagging in their accounting uh, because these are financial losses for the most part. Um, it, it's not immediately recognizable, you know, what your extent of loss is. And it may be that a company, you know, now, you know, what, five months into the pandemic um, is looking at their losses and, and thinking that they may not be substantial if, if things don't change, if we continue to see a sluggish economy, if we don't have people going back to work, these losses will continue. And under insurance, property insurance, you know, that loss once in motion continues uh, for the duration of the policy, which may um, in many of these cases go beyond the actual date the policy terminates because business interruptions continue. And those losses are specifically continued until the limits are exhausted or the time period for the coverage um, has been used up. And it may be that it's not until two, three, four, five months down the road before some policyholders realize that, yeah, I really have something that I need to act on. And at that point, it may be too late because if they didn't put the carrier on notice timely after the loss incepted, and by timely, I mean now, even now is starting to get behind the curve, um, it, you may be time barred just in terms of giving late notice you know, if you wait too long. You both raise great points, and I think that we're likely to see that as well in certain categories of class actions that haven't predominated, you know, that pie chart we looked at earlier about the types of claims that have been brought, um, but that it, it's reasonable to anticipate in the future because of the natural lag time, particularly with regard to financial reporting or even reductions in force that may need to happen when we see the full financial impact uh, of the crisis on companies. Things that immediately come to mind are you know, securities litigation, shareholder litigation, that's likely to arise later. And as you know, um, as either, um, you know, if any reductions in force or layoffs occur, or, you know, as folks are, may not report to duty or may demand certain conditions, um, we've yet to see the full effects there. And another area that also stands out to me is by nature, there is going to be lag time or where there are data security vulnerabilities, there may be breaches or privacy issues, especially as we have seen such a shift um, for both employees and consumers moving more online and in person. That's a huge amount of data generated. We saw some initial um, vulnerabilities with Zoom, <laughs> which we're on today, um, and some class action litigation arising from that. but. I will be shocked if there are not other types of vulnerabilities and frankly, um, as bad actors evolve to learn how to exploit them in the coming months. All right.
So if we, unless we have other thoughts, it might be a natural um, time to move on to some questions. Um, if any of our attendees today um, have questions they want to pose, uh, that function's available here. And we, we have a full few more minutes in our um, hour if anyone has any, any thoughts or questions they'd like to share. We covered it all and I'm gonna be here. <laughs> I have a quick question for Lucas actually, and that is can you is there any rhyme or reason to which universities have been targeted for the tuition uh, refund cases? Because it seems to me to be very random. There seem to be some major universities and then there are smaller ones and I I, I couldn't quite figure out a pattern and what the strategy is for plaintiffs lawyers in bringing those cases? It would seem to be everybody or nobody. Why are there, you know, these targeted institutions and then others are untouched? Well, I think they have attempted to go at the larger institutions first, which there is a higher dollar value claim. Uh, right. And so, you know, a, a institution with 50,000 undergrads, there is a larger claim than the, you know, a school with 1,200 undergrads. Uh, but it's also finding plaintiffs to bring these cases. So I think what you're, you know, often some of these firms that are bringing the cases have their informational inform, um, kind of advertisements up on their, on their websites and, and whoever is responding, they're, they're bringing those claims. Um, so I, I think it is a combination of where have they found the plaintiffs and the size of the institution. I would not be surprised that if there will be another wave where some of the smaller to medium, you know, medium to small size schools get, do get hit with these, with these claims. Uh, so uh, a question did pop in to the q and I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh, Lucas, I think, and Melanie, I think this goes to both of you. What are some, uh, what are sample real estate-based class actions and fact patterns? Um, so I'm not sure exactly what's meant from real estate. I mean, one area that we are expecting to see activity, I think this falls into the category of a delayed financial impact. Um, is I think that it's likely we're going to see um, an uptick in disputes, especially in, in commercial real estate um, with those landlords and tenants. Um, it may come up through um, litigation, although there I think we're less likely to see class action litigation, but I think that there will likely be an uptick in, in litigation. Um, you know, as it relates to, it may, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what else we may see. We may see, um, you know, certain debt collection practices um, questioned. Um, there may be a fall. I, I don't know if we would see a fallout in, in sort of the residential mortgage space at all. Um, those are interesting questions. To date, I haven't seen, I don't know about other folks, I haven't seen any real estate class actions and where it's a heavily contracted area that's going to be very bespoke to the circumstances. It might not be particularly um, well positioned to be resolved through the class action mechanism. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts or <laughs> if you do or not want to give any ideas <laughs> for claims that might be pursued. Yeah, I think you're right, Melanie. I think some of it too has to do with a lot of these issues. I might talk about the and Lucas and where there's some delay and lag it has to do with some of these because of the unique circumstances of COVID there have been a lot of you know either legislation or you know relief to you know tenants and 
you know, so there's been probably a hesitancy at this point to really start litigating those. I think, you know, at a certain point in time, the landlord's patience will run out. And, you know, so I think you might see an uptick in some of these real estate related litigations as time goes on. Whereas now I think there's been, you know, some forgiveness, um, you know, provided by the landlords in these cases. And maybe that's why you haven't seen, a, we haven't seen a lot of activity in that area to date. Oh, and just to give, so there was a mention in the, in the chat. Um, so it does look like in the filings, because there are some federal filings in, in the chart that are, are associated with um, real estate. Um, there are some that relate to damage to property and property claims. So it looks like in the federal, you know, docket classification that those property damage claims. Uh, but it looks like uh, at least more than half of those are labeled as landlord um, tenant um, litigation. So, um, yeah, well, we'll see, but I think that that number, um, may be, may encompass, um, complex commercial actions as well as class actions. Um, but that, again, as we mentioned, where given the lag times, it's, it's, it will be interesting to see, um, you know, if we see additional types of claims or theories unfold. All right. Oh, and I'll, I'll just share because this, we don't have the chat function, but there's follow up in the question and answer space um, that there might be related constitutional challenges about legislation as it might relate to, to real estate claims. So um, yeah, it'll be very interesting. There's a lot of uncharted territory here where um, I think it'll be fascinating to see how it unfolds. All right, I don't know if we have any other questions coming in. I don't see any. All right, so unless there are any additional thoughts uh, by anyone, um, I think that concludes what we, what we had to discuss today. Great. Thanks all for having us. Thank you. Us. Thanks, Melanie. Thanks, Lucas. Thank the panel uh, once again on the behalf of the BBA. Um, and I just want to let all the participants know again that you'll receive a copy of the recording within a few days. And thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank, thank you. you.